despite all of the, the planning and preparation, things sometimes go very wrong at weddings. When Jesus attended a wedding near the start of his public ministry, there was also a disaster. But in this case, that disaster proved an amazing opportunity for Jesus to reveal his glory and show that God had saved the best to last. So we're going to look at John chapter 2 this morning, verse 1 down to verse 11. John chapter 2, verse 1 down to verse 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Throughout the the four Gospels, there's something like 35 miracles of Jesus recorded. But in his Gospel, John only records a, a fraction of these. And John doesn't call them miracles or acts of power, as the other synoptic Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, eh, record. Instead, John calls them signs. We read this morning, this is this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He called them signs. And most people would see that John recorded seven of these signs. Although the numbering of the seven signs is a bit debated uh, between people. But however we number them, the clear truth is that Jesus didn't just perform these miracles because he could or because there was a need. Instead he he performed these miracles to point to something. They were designed to point to the reality of who he is and what he can do. So that we will put our trust in him. So John 1.11 says, he, sorry, John 2.11 says, He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So we should see something 
here in this miracle that reveals the identity and the mission of Jesus. And we should see that and we should respond to that by putting our trust in Him. But what did this miracle point to? What what does this miracle teach us? What are we supposed to learn from what Jesus did here? Well, many people see Jesus' attendance at this wedding as a sign of the importance of marriage, the value of marriage. And certainly, marriage is a wonderful gift from God. And I'm not just saying that because Lorna's here. God designed marriage to bless us. He created Eve and gave her to Adam because he recognised that it's not good for the man to be alone. And God instituted marriage to provide us with partnership and with intimacy and with security and with love. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And Jesus in his teaching, he emphasised this truth. When he quoted from this verse in Genesis, he said this, he added this, So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus reiterated the value, the sanctity of marriage. And so Jesus was willing to attend this wedding, because it was a celebration of something good, something God-given, something God-honouring. And in the Jewish custom, boy, they knew how to celebrate. Have you ever, ever t- attended a wedding and you thought it just went on forever and ever? you ever been at a wedding like that? Well, just be glad you didn't go to weddings in those days. In the evening of the day fixed for the wedding... The bridegroom and his friends, they would go to the bride's house. There, he would collect his bride and bring her back to his or his parents' house in a noisy procession with singing and with music and with dancing. And at the house, there would be a marriage feast. Then it would be followed by the marriage ceremony itself. Then it would be followed by a whole week of wedding festivities when the bridegroom was expected to provide all of the food and all of the drink for all of his guests a whole week of wedding party but Jesus wasn't just celebrating this marriage because it was a gift from God he was also pointing to something far greater than that the Old, Testament, this, the Old Testament describes the relationship between God and the people of Israel like a marriage. There's lots and lots of verses about this, but one of them is Isaiah 54, 5. It says, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. That's why when the nation of Israel rejected God, and went and worshipped all of the false gods, that's why God accused them of adultery. Because the relationship was supposed to be like the faithfulness between a husband and wife. So, that's what the Old Testament describes as the relationship between God 
and Israel. And it broke down because of the sin of Israel. But when Jesus came, he came to restore this relationship, but even greater way. So the church is described as the bride of Christ. And Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so one day, Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming for his bride. And he's going to take her to be with him forever in his father's house. And heaven is described as a great wedding banquet. Revelation 19 and 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready. So in performing his first miracle at this wedding, Jesus was pointing to the amazing reality of this wonderful relationship that we've been called into as his church. And he was calling us to be part of that. To be part of this wonderful, intimate relationship with him. The other thing that some people think this miracle points to is that it's a sign of the importance of Jesus' mum in God's kingdom. So in John chapter 2 verse 3, it says, When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now I've heard people say that because Jesus performed this miracle in response to the request of Mary, then this means that we can ask Mary for all of the miracles that we need in our lives. But of course that's not what this passage teaches at all. Yes, Mary did bring this problem to Jesus. Because running out of wine at a wedding was a shocking and embarrassing social blunder. It was even really serious. It could even lead to a lawsuit. You could sue the bridegroom for not providing enough wine during his wedding. Can you imagine? So Mary was concerned about this. Similarly, maybe she was part of this family in some way. And so it was natural for her to be concerned. And it was natural for her to tell Jesus about this. Most people assume that Jesus, uh, that, sorry, Joseph, Mary's husband, is absent from the later parts of all of the Gospels because Joseph had died by that time. So Mary here was just turning to her eldest son and asking him if he could do something to sort this problem out. But I really don't think that she was asking for a miracle. I don't believe that would be what would be on Mary's mind. After all, why would she think that Jesus could do a miracle? For the past 30 years, her son had lived what looked like, from the outside anyway, an ordinary, everyday life. Without any miracle at all. Do you remember what Jesus' neighbours said when he went back home? and started to preach to them. They said, what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? They were basically saying, 
why is Jesus doing these kind of things? He's just Jesus from down the road. He's just a carpenter. I've got and got a table and a chair made by him. How is he doing miracles? Because he'd never done any miracles for the past 30 years. So Mary wasn't looking for a miracle here. She was just telling her oldest son about the problem. But did you notice what Jesus' response was to Mary? It was far from positive. In fact, there's a gentle rebuke here. Verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now it's actually just, it's not mum. He doesn't call her mum. He just calls her woman, right? And some people read that and think, wow, that's harsh. Hey, woman, get out of here, kind of thing. But that's not what is going on here. It's the same word that Jesus used, the same form of address that Jesus used when he spoke to his, his mother from the cross. Remember when he entrusted his mum into the care of John and John into the care of his mum? It's the same phrase, dear woman. So there's love and there's gentleness here. But his words do show that he wasn't focused on what his mum was going to ask him to do. His focus was no longer to, to obey his mum and what she wanted. Instead, his focus was his father's mission and his father's timing. Five times in this gospel it's spoken about Jesus' time has not yet come. And then later in the gospel, three times it says Jesus' time has come. The time? What's the time? Well, the time in each of these cases is the time of Jesus' death on the cross. Because that's the reason why he came. That was the focus of the mission that his father had given him to do. And so Jesus here was saying that his actions were under God's direction and nobody, not even his mum, could push their own agenda onto him. And I think that's something that we all need to remember. When we come to Christ, we cannot dictate to him what he should do. We can't tell him what to do. Instead, like him, we need to submit to our Heavenly Father's will and his timing in our life. We need to say, like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. And Mary, she seemed to accept this. She didn't complain about what Jesus said to her here. Instead, she told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And it was in response to that that then Jesus then acted to turn the water into wine. So although Mary was involved in bringing this need to Jesus, as she did this, she wasn't performing a unique role, a special role, because of her relationship with Jesus. Instead, she was just doing something that lots of people did. Throughout the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels we see lots of people bringing their needs to Jesus. A royal official begged Jesus to heal his son. Four men carried their paralyzed friend and dropped him down through the roof so that Jesus would heal him. Jairus begged Jesus to come and to heal his dying daughter. 
So instead of pointing out to pointing to the, the special relationship that Mary had with Jesus, this simply points to the privilege that every believer has in bringing your problems to Jesus. Listen to how a guy called Don Carson puts it about when he tries to describe Mary's role. He says, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. She responds as a believer and her faith is honoured. She approaches as his mother and is reproached, but she responds as a believer and her faith is honoured. So yeah, it would be good for us to follow Mary's example here and bring our needs, not to her, but to follow in her example and bringing our needs to Jesus. As Peter said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But still we need to ask, why did Jesus change water into wine? Yes, it was a a deeply embarrassing situation for the family. But why did Jesus choose this situation to perform his first miracle? I'm sure there must have been many deeply troubling, difficult situations that Jesus had faced for the last 30 years of his life. So why did Jesus choose this miracle, this time, to perform this miracle? What is supposed to teach us here? Well, some people take this to prove that Jesus approves of their drinking habits. You know? Well, Jesus turned water into wine, so it's okay to drink. I don't think that was what Jesus was doing here at all. In Jesus' day, the alcohol content of wine was much less. Wine was not distilled, instead it was diluted. Two or three parts of water to one part wine. So it's highly unlikely that drunkenness was part of this wedding celebration. In fact, one of the roles of that uh, master of the banquet was to ensure that everybody, all of the guests would enjoy the party, but wouldn't get drunk. So drunkenness is not what this is about. And again, the, the Bible warns us again and again of the dangers of alcohol abuse. It warns of the, the violence that it encourages. So it says, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Or also warns of the poverty that it causes. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. And it also describes the disastrous consequences of drunkenness in a number of people's lives. For example, in Noah's life or in Lot's life from the Old Testament. If you want to have a look at it, you can see the absolute mess that drunkenness caused in their family. And so the Apostle Paul wrote, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So here, Jesus was not encouraging drunkenness. Whether we believe that we can use alcohol in moderation, or like me, we believe that it's just better just to stay away from it completely in our lives, then we need to be aware of its dangers 
And we need to be wise about how we use it. And Jesus would want to encourage us and help us to be wise, not to abuse alcohol. So why, if alcohol is so dangerous, why did Jesus turn water into it? Why did he turn water into wine? Well, I think it's because of the symbolic use of wine throughout the the scriptures. Wine is often seen as a sign of blessing and a symbol of joy. A sign of blessing and a symbol of joy. So when Isaac blessed his son Jacob, he said, May God give you of heaven's dews and of earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. Sign of blessing. And in Psalm 104, it praises God for the the bountiful provisions that he has given. And one of those gifts is wine that gladdens the heart of man. A symbol of joy. Sign of blessing, symbol of joy. So in turning water into wine... Jesus was showing what his ministry was all about. It's about bringing the blessing and the joy that we long for in our lives. Jesus is saying that he can bring that joy and he can bring that blessing into our lives. Not to encourage us to go and drink so that we can have that, but so that he can have it. He can, he can give it to us and we can receive it from him. So, remember Moses? Remember the, the plagues that he brought, into, brought to the nation of Egypt? Remember the first one? God turned water into blood. Why? Well, because it was about as a sign of God's coming judgment on the nation of Egypt. So Moses brings judgment. But Jesus, he turns water into wine as a sign of God's coming blessing. And the fullness of joy that he's going to give. And later on in his gospel, Jesus said this. He said, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. That's what Jesus' ministry is about. It's about bringing real joy. Not the false joy of the parties and the drinking and all that stuff. But the real joy that our hearts long for into our lives. But there's something more here. Did you notice where the water was taken from before it was turned into wine? Did you notice that? Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Why that detail? Why telling us about jars, stone jars? Why do we want to know about that? Well, it's because what those jars were used for and what they symbolise. These jars, they were used to contain water. And whenever guests arrived at somebody's house, this water was used to pour the water over their hands. Now, this wasn't for hygiene purposes. They didn't have this idea that they were washing away the bacteria and all that kind of stuff that we would wash our hands for. Instead, this was a ritual act of cleansing. So if somebody ate with unwashed hands, they would be considered defiled before God. 
don't know if you remember, that the Pharisees actually accused Jesus and his disciples of doing that very same thing. But of course, this water could never make somebody right with, with God. They could never make somebody clean in God's sight. Like all of the rituals and ceremonies of Judaism, it couldn't clean what mattered the most. It couldn't make anybody new on the inside. It couldn't bring fresh power into their lives. It couldn't wash away their sins. The Pharisees, they were big into these external rituals. They did those and and criticised those who didn't. And yet, they were still as unclean on the inside. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. On the outside you appeared as people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So all of the water and washing and rituals of Judaism never cleaned anybody before God. So these water jars, they're a symbol of the powerlessness of the old covenant. Hebrews 10 and 1 says about the old covenant law that it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The old covenant could never make anybody clean. Could never make anybody right with God. But Jesus came to bring something far better than that. Jesus didn't come to repeat the rules and the rituals of the old covenant. Instead, he came to bring the new covenant. One that would bring real transformation from the inside out. So did you notice what the master of the banquet said when he tasted this wine that Jesus had made? Verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You have saved the best till now. In the past, God gave amazing gifts to the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. The law, the sacrificial system, the promised land, the security and prosperity of the kingdom, the access to God through the temple. Identity as God's people. But God had saved the best till now. Because now through Jesus, we don't have laws written on stone tablets. Instead, we have laws written on our hearts and minds. The new covenant says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And we don't have a whole load of animal sacrifices day after day after day. Instead we have a better sacrifice. Because by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus. Death on the cross. And we don't have a portion of of land in the promised land. Instead we have a better promise of a place in God's house. Because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we don't have the security and the prosperity because King David is strong and his armies are strong. Instead, we have the the security and prosperity of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. 
and we don't have a, a temple of stone and wood where we can get some kind of access to God, but we have to stay out of the most holy place. Instead, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And we don't even just have the identity of being God's people. Because we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. What Jesus was bringing was better than anything that had come before. God had saved the best till now. And that's what we've been celebrating this morning in our communion time. Remember how Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood which is poured out for you. This cup is a cup of blessing and joy for us. But of course it only comes to us because Jesus willingly took that cup of suffering and death on the cross. So this is the first miraculous sign in Jesus' ministry. This is the revelation of Jesus' glory. His attendance at a wedding pointed to the wonder of the day when Christ will come back for his bride. His rebuke to his mum pointed to the reality that Jesus came to finish the work that his father had given him to do. And his miraculous transformation of that water into wine, into the best of wine, pointed forward to the fact that God had saved the best till now. That Jesus came to release us from the rules and the rituals and the condemnation of the old covenant. And to bring us into the forgiveness and the freedom and the fullness of joy of the new. So God's call to us today is to respond as the disciples did. And it's simply to put our faith 